Welcome to the Garage Podcast, presented to you by the Young Adults Group at Salem First Baptist Church. Thanks for tuning in to hear this week's message from Pastor Tyler Hankey. All right, friends, thank you so much for being here. If you're new, we're in a series on gender and identity, and this week we have the topic of transgenderism. Um, I was even struggling with the title. Do I call it transgender ideology? Do I call it transgender people? And I, I settled with people because this isn't a week to talk about ideas or ideology. This is a week to talk about people and where they might be struggling. So here's what we're gonna do. I, as a goal, so that you know where I'm going and, and just what the, the whole feel of this morning is gonna be like, I, I stole my goal completely right out of a book that I was reading this past week, um, embodied by Dr. Preston Sprinkle. He begins his book this way. He says, here's my goal. I wanna think more deeply and I wanna love more deeply on this issue. That's it. I wanna think deeper, I wanna love more on this issue. This is not a morning where you're gonna learn a bunch of Bible verses to go beat transgender people up. This is not a morning to list a bunch of stats about why it might be wrong or right or whatever. This is a morning where we're gonna do three things. So note takers, it's Trinitarian this morning, you're gonna love this. Movement number one, we're gonna go and answer the question, what does the Bible say about your body? What does the Bible say about your body? Because this is, these are discussions of, of identity and, and physicality and just what you're feeling inside. So we're going to go to scripture and just say, what does the Bible say about your body? Number two, I read so many different articles and books and listened to so many different speakers. I, I listened to probably 12 different interviews with different transgender people so that I could confidently say to you that I have done the work to get their side of the story. And so what I wanna do, I didn't wanna just come and give you a bunch of verses and say, hey, when you meet someone struggling with their gender identity, hit them with A, B, and C, and they're gonna turn around and you're gonna be good. No, that's stupid. I wanted to go and look at where they're arguing and where the transgender person might say, hey, here's what I'm feeling and I wanna try to bring that into scripture and, and see where it meshes. And so I wanted to look at their arguments and we're gonna ask questions of those. So we're gonna let them speak and then move that way. And then finally, we're gonna end um, movement number three is just what can you do? What can you do if you're struggling in this area or if you have someone in your life that's struggling in this area, how, how can you help? And so that's movement number three. So here we go, jumping into this. What does the Bible say about your body? I've got four movements in, inside this movement, so I'm, I'm just gonna bless my note takers today and just prep you. So what does the Bible say? Number one. Point number one, you need your physical body to be an image bearer of God. That is point number one. You need your physical body to be an image bearer of God. When you go back to the beginning in the moment that you were created, here's what we gotta start doing. You need to start linking who you are as a person on the inside with your physical body because point number one, it is needed. When God created you and, and me, when he created everyone, he said, I made you in my image. Now, theologians argue all the time about what that means. Like, is it the non-physical? Like, we're creative because God's creative. We like to build because he likes to build. We like to order because he orders. I think that that is true in part, but you have to go to the text. What did he actually say? I made you physically, and I gave you gender in, in the moment of creation so that you could be my image bearers. So your body and your genitalia 
was given to you so that you might be an image bearer of God. So you might not know fully what that means, but from the very beginning of this argument, you and me have to admit from Scripture, your physical body matters and was given to you as a gift that you might represent God well. Now, I'm, I'm hoping to show you more of what that means, but let's just start there. Point number one, you need your physical body if you're gonna be a good image bearer of God because he gave it to you from the beginning. Number two, your body is sacred. Now, this is something that we don't appreciate in our culture. We don't understand sacred at all. Okay, and just for an example, and don't raise your hand, don't, <laughs> I don't wanna out anyone. When you think about what you do with your Bible, have you ever thrown your Bible? Don't answer, don't raise your hand. Like, if you've gone home and you just kind of like chuck it on the couch, yeah, if you did anything like that in the Old Testament, you're dead. Like, you're a dead person. We don't understand the sacred. And so, in order to help you understand, 1 Corinthians 6 says that your body, the moment you become a Christian, your body is then made a temple. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you might not fully appreciate what that actually means. In order to appreciate it, you need to go back in your own history, like Christi Christian's history. So when I go back and I go to the Old Testament, God originally dwelled. So I'm talking us and God in relationship. It's, it's transformed throughout the years. When it was just Adam and Eve, it said God walked with them in the garden. There was nothing weird about that. That was normal. It was human beings and it was God and everything was perfect. When Adam and Eve messed it up, God left from them and the next time we see God dwelling with people, it was in the tabernacle. That's a tent. It's the Old Testament tent that God dwelt in. And again, to understand sacredness, if you touched the Holy of Holy, that, that was the tent inside the tent. If you touched that and you weren't the high priest, you're dead. If you disrespected it, you're dead. If you stood outside the tent and mocked God, you're dead. You're just dead. There was nothing to it. Like you need to understand, the people of God needed to understand. Tent, God, holy, me, not holy, don't touch it. So there, God was there with them, but there was distance. And then as time moves on, God institutes the temple. So it was the tabernacle, but in a structural building, he says, temple, holy of holies, don't mess with it. Just, you don't touch it, you don't disrespect it. It's holy. Move forward in the timeline to you sitting in this room right now. Your body is that place. But we do all kinds of things with our body in a way that doesn't show that we actually respect ourselves or that we respect God. But Paul needs you to understand your body is holy and you can't misuse it. And here's the point. Here's what's crazy about the context of this. He says, your body is a temple. And everyone's like, okay, sure. But he continues. He says, then why are you inviting prostitutes into the temple? Why are you sleeping with people that you shouldn't be sleeping with? I'm not trying to heap a bunch of shame on people. I'm just giving you the context of the verse. He says, in the, in, in the context of that, he was talking about sexual sin. And he says something. He goes, your physical actions have moral consequences on your soul. Sexual sin, friends, if you didn't know, is the only type of sin where the Bible says you are sinning against yourself. So if I, if I lie, if I cheat, if I steal, I'm sinning against other people. When I commit sexual sin, I'm sinning against myself. And Paul says, I need you to take that seriously because what's his point? His point is that your body and your soul, who you are as a person is one. It is connected. 
Now, I don't mean to, to dog on transgender people. I don't. But here's, what, here's their argument. If you're a biological man and, a and, and the transgender person says, well, no, on the inside, I'm actually a woman, what are they telling you? What are they telling you in that moment? What they're saying without saying it is that what's in me is the real me. My body is not real. My body has nothing to do with who I am. And Paul's going, not true. It's not true. Who you are is a body and a soul. You are an embodied soul. It is one being. And when I begin to separate my physical body from who I am as, as a soul-containing person, when I split that, that's when I get in trouble. That's when I get in trouble. He goes, stop going out and sinning physically because it's affecting your soul. Don't split those. The real you and the physical you are the same thing. Point number three, when Jesus is talking about gender, he never corrects his father. So when you go to Genesis and he says, male and female, I created them, every time Jesus preaches on marriage, divorce, gender, he always says, male and female. So if you wanted to try to make the argument that when we get into the New Testament, Jesus changes a bunch of stuff, that is true. He changes a number of things, but he never changes gender. So if you're like, okay, there's Old Testament law and I get it, maybe the transgender person could give you the, the fact that Old, Old Testament, I'll give that to you. No transgender. But in the New Testament, Jesus changes it. No, he doesn't. He doesn't change it. He maintains what his father said, and he said, I made humans male and female. Point number four, and this one is honestly my favorite because I love thinking about heaven. When you think about the next life, there is strong evidence in Scripture to say that our gendered reality maintains in the next life. Let me give you some, some evidence for that. Number one, when there wasn't any sin in the garden, so when you go back to the moment that we were created, was there gender? Yes. Was there sin? No, not at the moment we were created. So when, as Adam and Eve were existing as gendered people in perfection, there was gender. There was a male and there was a female, and that was good, uninterrupted, and it was gonna lead to human flourishing. So at the beginning when everything was perfect, gender existed. Then, here's my next evidence point. Jesus pre and post his death, was a man. So when Jesus was resurrected, was he suddenly gender neutral? No, he was still a man. And John, when he's speaking about the resurrection, says, in the same way that Jesus was resurrected, you and me will be resurrected. I don't believe that suddenly when you are resurrected, you know, in the, in the last days, that you're gonna arise gender neutral. I, I don't see it. When Jesus arose, they still recognized him. His pronouns didn't change. He still had the holes in his hands, but he was perfect. Like it, the, the Bible says that they knew him, but, but they didn't. He seemed a little different. I want to I read you something. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 14. It says, by his power, or by, by the power of God, he will raise the Lord from the dead, Jesus from the dead, and he will also raise us. Let me say that again. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ, my body, and unite them to a prostitute? No, never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So what did he just connect? 
Your body and your soul are connected to God. I don't think that suddenly when you're resurrected that gender just disappears. You were made from the very beginning to be gendered reflections of God and that is needed. Men are needed, women are needed. And it's who you are at your core. Even transgender individuals and scientists will agree, you can never actually change gender. They will admit this. I can't ever change that I'm a man. I can begin to change how I display myself and how my body might seem to you, but down to the very cells of my body, I am a man. And down to the very cells of your body, ladies, you are a woman. And no surgery or hormones will ever change that. So we need to begin to discuss what does it really mean to be a gendered individual. And so that kind of moves us to the next movement, movement number two, arguments for the idea that you can be a transgender person and be a Christian. Now, remember, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm not trying to insult anyone. I'm not going to look at these arguments and go, man, that's dumb. A lot of these make some sense. So we're going to look at these, and if you want to look at this for yourself, I, I, gained, I read so many different interviews, but one that I appreciated the clarity of his presentation is Austin Hart, or Hartke. I don't know how you say his last name, but it's H-A-R-T-K-E. Transgender man, so biologically a woman, transitioned to a man, and he was giving a presentation saying transgender people can be Christians, and here's why. Now, it wasn't just his arguments that I listened to. I heard these same arguments from many different people. I'm just saying that for, you know, confidence in the message. Here was the first one. So here was a, a number of their arguments. The first one, and I saw this a number of different times, came from Galatians 3, verse 28. Okay, if you're not aware of what that says, let me just read it to you. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that was, that's the stated verse, and here was the argument. What this verse is doing in the kingdom of God as Jesus has displayed it, is there is now a downplay of gender difference. That's the argument. So as Jesus followers, male and female distinctions, they can go away, because Jesus is beginning a new thing. Sounds kind of good, right? Especially if you've really not liked the gender differences. You look at this verse and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm for that. Here's the problems. There's a number of problems with this argument. Number one, when you look at this, when you look at the context, and, and you, if you have done ministry with me, I will say this a thousand times. Look at the context. What was this written in? They were talking about salvation. So this was to a group of people that was so entrenched in social hierarchies that they thought Jesus was more, or that other, certain people deserved Jesus more, and that they were better than others. So like Jews commonly thought they were better than Gentiles. They're like, we're the people of God, so yeah, we, we are kind of better. And Jesus goes, not true. You're not better than them. You're different, you're distinct, you're not better. Also, there was other hierarchies of male and female. You know this, I've said this a thousand times. In ancient Middle East cultures, ladies, you didn't have you, you weren't known, you weren't represented, you, you had no voice. And so what Jesus is saying is not that male and female, there's no difference. He's saying, ladies, in value, you have equal standing with men. So what he was doing was not removing distinctions, he was 
removing social hierarchies to say, stop treating people poorly based on man-made hierarchy. Stop doing that. Because here's the thing. Let's assume for a second that he was downplaying the, the distinctions of gender. You would need to apply that same status to the other thing. So I dare you to go to Israel and tell all the Jews, hey, there's no difference between me and you. There, there's no Jews. There's no Gentiles and just see what happens. That's not going to go well for you. I don't believe that he was removing distinctions in that list. What he was saying is you have equal standing in Jesus. Here's the other problem with this argument. The guy that wrote it is Paul. And if you read the rest of what Paul said, he regularly, regularly brought up the distinctions of men and women and celebrated them. He's like, ladies, there's incredible things that you can do that men shouldn't or can't do. And gentlemen, there's amazing things you can do that women can't or shouldn't do. Celebrate those things. Stop trying to erase them. So why would the guy that said that also go here and say that gender difference isn't really a thing? Make sense? Let's move on to the next one. This is the argument of the eunuch. You're like, what in the world is a eunuch? A eunuch is a castrated man. A eunuch is a castrated biological male. And they'll use this argument because Jesus was teaching, and this is found in Matthew 19, if you want to go research this yourself, and he was talking about marriage and divorce. And the Pharisees were, were pushing back on him on, on divorce laws, and Jesus was going, you want to know why divorce exists, why divorce laws exist? Because you are hard-hearted idiots. He's like, the reason that we have this in the first place is because you couldn't learn to settle differences and love each other. He says that. He's like, you, the reason divorce laws exist is because human beings are hard-hearted. That's it. And his disciples are hearing this, and this was a fairly aggressive argument. And here's what they say, and I quote, if this is what marriage is, then it is better to be single. I kind of love this. Like, the disciples are sitting there, and they're like, dang, man, marriage sounds ridiculous. Like, this just sounds really, really hard. It's just better to be single. And Jesus goes, okay, no. Not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying at all. Jesus says the reason that I'm saying this, we're not having a marriage is good or bad argument. We're having a faithfulness discussion. We're not having a marriage is good or bad discussion. We're not having a singleness is good or bad discussion. We're having a faithfulness discussion. Let me tell you about the eunuch. And they're like, okay. Like, why are we talking about castrated males? And Jesus is like, sit tight, let me tell you. In Matthew 19, he says there's three types of eunuchs. There are men that are born this way. There are some eunuchs that this was done to them. And there are some that live like eunuchs. Let me explain what I mean. Some men at the time, and, and even today, are born with deformed genitalia. And in that culture, you were immediately described as a eunuch. You weren't actually castrated, but you couldn't produce children, so they just called you a eunuch. And in that society, you were not a man. As a Jewish man with deformed genitalia, you weren't a man. And so you needed to find something to do because you weren't going to lead a family and you weren't going to have kids. It could also be a man that didn't have deformed genitalia, but they had no way to test if you had sperm mobility. So they're like, okay, you're married, but there's no kids coming out of that family. Eunuch. So we go, some men were born this way. Number two, others were made this way. This is horrible to me. Certain rulers had harems, right? If you don't know what a harem is, it's a group of women that you as the ruler would sleep with. And you didn't want your guards sleeping with your women, so you castrated them. And you said, hey, I don't want to have to worry that you're sleeping with my ladies, so I'm going to cut off your man parts, and you're going to guard them with no sexual desire. It worked. 
Okay, kind of hard to sleep with the ladies if you have no man parts. So they said some men are made like this. He continues and he says there's one more. There are some that decide to live like eunuchs. They're not actually eunuchs. And so what most scholars believe Jesus was trying to say is there are certain individuals in this life, they don't hate marriage. They don't hate the idea of sex. There's nothing wrong with it. But they look at the idea of service to Jesus and they say, God, you have all of me. You have all of me. I don't hate marriage. I have nothing against it. I just love you and I know that you're calling me to an insane place and I in good conscience cannot take a family with me. He says in Matthew 19 that this is given to people and I'm asked this all the time specifically because I'm leading young adults and some of you in this season of your life get rather lonely and I get it because your friends are starting to get married and then other friends are already starting to have kids and you're like, oh, okay, I kind of feel like I'm getting left behind and you start to get a little lonely and you're like, Tyler, is God in this moment calling me to be single? And I'm like, I honestly don't know. Here's what I do know. Every adult, grown adult that I've ever met who is still single and pursuing the kingdom is utterly delighted with their lot. They are utterly delighted with who they are and what they've been called to do. So if you're sitting there and you're grieving the idea of not being married, I don't necessarily think you've been called to be single. I don't. Because the single ones that I know, they're not going like, man, I really wish I could be married right now. No, they've said, Jesus, you have all of me. And it's not that Jesus doesn't have all of me. I mean, I'm married and I'm, I love my wife, love my kids, and I am sold out for Jesus. His point is a faithfulness discussion. It's not that eunuchs are better or it's better to be single. It's not that being married is better. What he's doing and what we need to understand is that if you're married, God bless you, love Jesus. If you're single, God bless you, love Jesus. Stop trying to make one better than the other. That's not what the discussion was. And this is why I think it's inappropriate going back to our discussion. Jesus says at the end, he goes, I want you to accept the eunuch. Because again, what were they doing? They were elevating marriage above the single serving individual. So they were essentially saying married people are better than single people. And Jesus is like, not true. Being single has enormous benefits, especially to faithfulness to God. So how, why do I think this isn't a good transgender argument? Well, because we don't know at all the gender identity of the eunuch. It doesn't mention one time what they were feeling inside especially like to the dude who was forcibly castrated to guard some other dude's girls? Uh, no, I don't think that dude didn't willingly choose to be a eunuch. The king was like, all right, you, guard the women. Oh, by the way, we need to do a minor surgery. You're not gonna like it, but you're gonna guard my ladies. Has nothing to do with gender identity. I just don't see it. When Jesus says accept them, what he's saying is, I want you to accept that people are gonna live this life differently than you, and as they serve me, don't mock them. Don't mock them. So that was the argument of the eunuch. Here is number three, and this is the argument of the spectrum. The argument of the spectrum. So this one, honestly, to me, makes the most sense out of almost any of the arguments. So here's their argument. When creation was recorded, when we read this in Genesis, it says there was night and day, there was land and sea, and there was men and women. So here's the argument. You've experienced dawn, right, and dusk. That, like, technically in that moment is not day and it's not night. It's the transition. So since you have clearly, in your experience in this life, 
lived through something that wasn't recorded in Scripture, then what Scripture must be is the day and night thing must be a spectrum. So God created the day and he created the light and everything in between. You see where I'm going with this? So he created land and sea, but you've seen a river and you've seen a marsh, which is clearly a mix of the two. So God made bookends and that's a spectrum. God is the alpha and omega, right? But he's not just the beginning and just the end. He's everything in the middle. So the argument then is that male and female is a spectrum and God created everything in between. That's the argument. So how in the world do you address that one? Because again, to me, that was one of their better arguments. That one seems to make a lot of sense. I've got I've to do a number of things. Number one, I need to always hold on to the fact that my gender and my soul are one. You can't begin to separate those. When you separate them, you can give yourself leniency through scripture that I don't believe is merited. Here's the other thing that you can do though. When you go back to original languages, right? The literal meanings. What did I say in week one and two? What is a man? And I don't, I, I don't mean to be crude. I really don't. I'm not saying this for shock value. The, we were, as, as an audience, you're looking at Adam and God goes, see the one with the penis? That's a man. Zakar, that's a male. See the one with the vagina? That's a woman. So when he says, I want you to look at the genitalia and that's going to mark who this individual is as a physical marker of what is inside. There's so much more to it, but he says on a literal level, male, female. So he closes it. He doesn't say that this is what a man could be and this is what a woman could be and there could be something in the middle. He says, that's a man, that's a woman. So he's already closed it for you. More than that, other arguments that you could give is that there is never, ever, not one time, a description of an individual in scripture that falls outside of the male-female dichotomy. You don't see it, not once. Now, you could try to argue for modern day, what about intersex people? Okay, that's a great question. What about the individuals that are born and they have both sets of genitalia? What do you do? Well, number one, and I just have to say this, not for legal reasons, but just for humility, I'm not a doctor. I have no scientific background, okay? You with me? I'm not trying to make a scientific statement. However, in all the research that I did, and you can talk to a medical professional, there are individuals born with both sets of genitalia, but almost always, down to like the 99 percentile, they are one gender, they're just presenting with both sets of genitalia. Usually a quick surgery near the beginning of their life will fix that problem. For the rare, rare individuals where DNA is just confusing, those are hard situations and I don't have a great answer. I really don't. At that point, it's, you know, wh what are they closest to when I look at their DNA? Is there any indicators there that would show me it's a male or a female? But I don't believe that the, or that the reality of intersex people gives you a third type of gender. Now, what I'm about to say can be very offensive to a transgender person, and I don't mean to be. I really don't. But when I look at sin, and, and this is commonly where people will go, and I've, I've heard transgender people feel insulted by this, but sin has warped what is. Okay, males are XY, women are XX, and when different things are added to that, we can get a twisting of what is normal. I don't believe that that's an introduction of another gender. I don't. I think it's a mix of what God's perfect order was. That is my opinion. You can disagree with me. I love you. I'm not trying to insult people. I'm just saying intersex to me seems to be a reality of, of sin. So take that 
for what it is. Here's one more, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up with our final, um, final movement, but here's the final argument. The Bible is old. <laughs> I don't know why that got laughed. The Bible's old. So here's the argument, and, and you could probably guess where this is going. Individuals will look at the Bible, and because what we're dealing with isn't like specifically stated, they'll say something like, your Bible doesn't account for transgender people. It didn't know about them, therefore they couldn't write about them. I don't buy that for a second. Let me tell you why. Individuals that try to twist gender for what it was existed from the very beginning of time. Okay, when I look at what we are able to do right now, I mean, you can take a biological male and give him a uterus and he can have a baby. That is fascinating. And I agree that that couldn't happen in the Old Testament. We didn't have the ability to. But if you go back and you look at records of ancient Mesopotamia, and because I wanted to be awesome, I did. So prep yourself. This is from De La Huerta from the book Blossom of Bone. And what he did, he just studied ancient Mesopotamia, and he's like, here's what I found. In ancient Mesopotamia, the goddess known as Ishtar was considered the patron, the patron of the Sinsat Zikram, a class of gender variant and possibly lesbian princesses. Likewise, she was also honored and served by the Kulbu, gender variant male priests, which included the Asinu and the Kugaru, both male and female groups wore androgynous attire with different sacred elements and were considered to hold special powers. It was believed, for example, that if you simply touch the Asinu's head, that it would lead to victory in battle. There is also the Kuguru, and if you merely saw them, you would have good luck. The Canaanite goddess Ashtar was also served by a class of gender variant priests called the Holy Ones and were responsible for the upkeep, uh, upkeep of the temple grounds and other rituals. Here, here's my point. Did they have people having sex changes back then? No, we didn't have the ability. Did you have men transitioning and acting like women, dressing like women, behaving like women, trying to cut off genitalia and have sex like women and, and vice versa? Yes, you did. We have record of it all over the ancient world. So to say that the Bible is old and doesn't have, and didn't know about these types of people, I think is misguided and shows that you didn't do enough research. So is the Bible old? Yeah, sure is. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't speak to what we're dealing with today. Does that make sense? So I've got one more movement. And I, I'm kind of frustrated because I actually brought, like, I brought my laptop and hooked it up to the, the TV. There was this interview that I was, and I'm going to try to find a way to post it on our social media platform. So hang in there for the next couple weeks. There was a woman named Heather Scriba. And I was going to show you a piece of an interview with her. She was born a biological female, and then she transitioned to a male and had hormones and had the double mastectomy and, and all the different surgeries, but then detransitioned back to a woman. So she lived, um, I, I believe that her other name was Jessie. And, and here's the part of her story that I wanted you to catch. So she grew up, and her dad was verbally, emotionally, and physically abusive. He also was hugely into regular gender, gender stereotypes. Like, women wear dresses, you have long hair, you can't enjoy things like sports and other things. Like, he was militant. But she, from a very young age, was like, I love to wrestle, I love to wear camo, I love to go do a lot of the things that guys do. Does that mean I'm not a woman? And he wouldn't ever answer her, he would just get angry. And so she started to believe, well, if I ever wanna be accepted by my father, I'll just transition, I'll just be a man. 
And so she began to transition because she said that she never felt any love or affection when she was a woman. So she transitions and lives her life for a number of years as a transgender man. She starts to feel this calling. She's like, I'm just not content. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. So she starts calling different churches. Finds one where there was a woman's conference, and she just felt strongly like God was saying, you need to go to that. And she's like, well, this is going to be awkward because I don't want to bunk with a bunch of ladies. I'm a transgender man. I don't want to be changing and showering. Like, I, I don't want to make them feel weird. I don't want to feel weird. So she calls the organizers. She says, hey, I'm a transgender man, but I really want to go to this conference. And they were like, we would be delighted if you would come to this conference. We will give you your own room, no extra cost. And if there's anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, we will remove any barriers if it means you get to come and feel loved, excited, and learn from this conference. So her heart just started exploding. She's like, okay, I have no reason to not go to this thing. So she goes. The lesson was on the names that we give ourselves and then the names that God gives us. So what she believed, the names that she had given herself was defective femininity because she genuinely believed deep down that she wasn't a good woman. Not moral, but not like she just didn't display femininity as was stereotypical. She also believed that she wasn't loved. She believed that she, she there was all these different names she gave herself, but she comes out of it and she, and she said, here was the name I walked away with, daddy's girl. I am my daddy's girl, and my father loves me no matter what sports I like to play or even if I don't like wearing dresses, who cares? That's not the mark of a woman. Makeup, hair, whatever, that's not the mark of a woman. Is that normal? Sure, Let, let's give that a normal, but that doesn't, mean, that doesn't make you a woman. She said, I am my father's daughter, and I am loved. So she left, but she still didn't change the way that she dressed because she... She was really almost trying to prove to herself, like, what is it that makes me a woman? But she continued going to that church, and they loved her, and they accepted her, and they said, hey, we understand you're struggling with this. We want to walk with you and pursue this with you. She eventually started changing how she dressed, and not that she was putting on dresses and wearing makeup. She, to this day, still doesn't really like doing that and still experiences somewhat being uncomfortable in her body. But she said, I know now where that uncomfortableness is coming from. And she said, I'm pursuing Jesus to the best of my ability as Heather. And she had to write a letter, not had to, she said that she wanted to. She wrote a letter from Jesse to Heather, so from herself to herself, apologizing for all the things that she had done to try to feel loved in her own power. And she said that that was transformative because I realized that what I was doing, it was self-love, she said. I, I was trying to get Heather to feel love. I just went about it in a twisted way and became a man, then discovering even after surgery that it wasn't doing anything. Friends, I in no way am trying to sound arrogant or brag, but I listened to person after person after person after person describe transition. And, and sure, are there people that transition and genuinely love it? Yeah, I don't want to say that that doesn't exist. But even um, Caitlyn Jenner got on Fox News, this was like two days ago, the, the suicide rate, for transgender people is nine times higher than the average, nine times. And, and they don't know how to describe that. Can, can I submit that I think we can describe it? If you are made a male or a female at your core, more than just your body, then to begin to change it, I'm not shaming them, I'm not demeaning them, I'm just saying you are trying to find love by twisting what is physical and that has consequences and they hurt. There's a man named Walter Heyer. 
Walter Heyer, and, and so as, as you start thinking about this, I want you to begin to process what can I do as a believer, whether you struggle with gender identity or not, what can I do to love people? This is a real issue. The percentage of individuals that are transitioning in the past couple years has been up 5,000% in the US. The number of individuals transitioning is up 5,000%. This is a real thing. And again, if you're like, why? Why is it such a big deal? Because, what did I tell you week one? God created the church, he created marriage, and he created gender to reflect himself. So what's Satan gonna attack? He will attack the church and our unity. He will attack marriage and its unity, and he will attack gender and its unity. Why is it being attacked? Because Satan hates you, and he hates humans. And so if he can manipulate what gender is, then others have a weaker, more, more diluted view of God because we were meant to show him off. Walter Heyer is a man, but when he was younger, transitioned to a woman. Here's why he did it. I want you to start asking why. Why are these people changing? Walt, in his ministry, since detransitioning, said, that's my number one goal. When I meet a transgender person, number one goal, discover, like, like listen to their story and discover why they hate their original body. Walt became a transgender because he was abused. So when he was younger, his uncle abused him. So in his little mind, here's what he thought. Monsters attack little boys. So if I transition to a woman, I won't be attacked. Now, using any basic level of logic, you're like, well, no, that's never gonna work. We know that. He didn't as a little boy. As a little boy, he's like, monsters attack little boys. I will transition to a woman and not be attacked. There is another woman. Her name is Kathy Grace Duncan. Both of these people operate ministries now and are helping people detransition and then help those that are struggling with the idea of it. Kathy Grace, she says, I was never abused. Like, that's not my story. She said, here's what she saw. Her mom and her dad had an ugly marriage, ugly, ugly marriage, and her father would regularly beat her mother. So in her little mind, she looked at that and said, well, women get hurt. So this is just what, I'm not saying that this is true. This is what she said. These are her words. Women are weak and they get beat up by strong men. So simple child logic. If I transition to a man, men are strong and men don't get hurt. You, you and I both know that that's not true. Men get hurt all the time. But in her mind, she's like, no, men don't get hurt. So she transitioned. Another thing that solidified her transition is that her parents had a little boy after her, her little brother, and her dad was elated. And so in her little mind, she said, women are replaceable, men are celebrated. Since that's true, I'll transition and then I'll be loved. When you are meeting with people one of your great privileges, and I mentioned this last week as siblings, one of your great privileges as siblings is to hear each other's hurt and to just sit in it and process it and move forward. One of your great blessings and responsibilities as Christians is to process the brokenness of the world, not to solve it, not to fix it. That's not your job. That's our king's job. Your job is to help people understand there is hope and there is healing and there is an identity that you can hold on to that lasts and you don't need to twist your body to make it to that identity. Friends, we're gonna talk so much more about gender, but what you need to understand is that if I view people through the eyes of Christ, number one, that means that I can see change in the future. No one is a lost cause, ever. No one is so far gone that they can't come back to Jesus and can't live an amazing life. Transgender ideology, transgender people 
are not enemies to be defeated. They are people to be loved. And if I can process pain with people in a, in a healthy way, I can move through. And the, like almost all the people didn't actually want to be the other gender. They were running from what their original gender was. And they're like, you know what? If I need to transition, I'll transition if it means I don't get hurt again. So what are people's stories? I'm also not saying that all transgender people are hurt. Some are just like, you know what? I'm, I'm fine. I just have these feelings and I want to feel loved and accepted. Process that. Have an amazing theology of gender and the physical that will help you. So do your work. Okay, this is not meant to solve all tension. This is meant to help you get curious. Okay, so go become a learner. Process this information. Look at the arguments that we might have intelligent discussions. Because if your theory is, I'm just going to love people, don't do that. That's lazy thinking. Let's get in there. Let's do the hard work. Okay, love people, yes. Educate yourself. And let's go really help people. Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you for this unbelievably beautiful day. Um, a topic like this is intimidating. It's scary because I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. I don't want to insult anyone because that's not my heart at all. I admit in this moment that I don't know everything. And what I want to challenge myself to do, God, and what I pray that everyone in here would do is that we would be learners, that we would bury ourselves in Scripture, that we would know your word and know how to answer people when they have difficult questions, but that more than that, we would be willing to go slow at other people's pace as they process their own story, maybe their own abuse, their own confusion. And would we genuinely care about people? Not, not that we would want to just fix everybody, but that we would want to listen and allow you to work on hearts. So I pray that this group would be, as I pray often, that we would be incredibly healthy. Not to brag or be arrogant, but God, that you would use us in an incredible way, that we would love you, love our gender, love our body, and process what it means to be men and women for you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Garage Podcast. We hope the message has made you think deeper about faith and will strike up new conversations as you go about your week. If you want to hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week.